Welcome to Enneagram Plus Yoga, a podcast for the body, heart, and mind. Kat and I are really excited about this episode that we've already recorded with Susan Lotta. Susan Lotta is a marriage and family therapist. She is also a grief expert. As far as I'm concerned, she's one of the best in the nation when it comes to teaching people about grief. And grief is not just about the death of a loved one. Grief could be going through a divorce, the loss of a job, the death of a pet, a big move in your life. It's just anything that is a loss for you that you need to feel, that you need to feel sadness about, anger about, the why of it, the fear of it, the guilt of it. Grief is big and it comes up for all of us. And so Susan's going to help guide us through grief for each of the nine Enneagram types and what it might feel like for a one on the Enneagram or a nine on the Enneagram. Grief is unique and different for each one of us. So join us. You're going to love what she has to say. It'll be life-changing stuff. And welcome to Enneagram Plus Yoga. We're so glad to have you here. You are by far the best grief expert I've met in the Chattanooga area. Um, I'm grateful to call you a friend. You've been a colleague to me as well in the past. We've worked closely together and um, it's just a joy to have you here. Um, It's an honor to have you here. So thank you for being here, Susan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. So the way that we thought that we would start out today is to just talk about grief in our own lives, because grief affects all of us. Um, it affects us differently. Um, and so I've asked Kat, Susan, and myself to, to kind of reflect on an experience of grief that we've had uh, at some point in our life and um, how we're continuing to take care of that grief, to nurture that grief, and to take care of ourselves in the midst of the grief process. And um, so this one's hard for me to talk about, but um, because it's happened so recently in the last year, December the 26th, um, my dad died um, in a nursing home. And of course, um, COVID was happening and he did die of COVID. Um, We found out um, a few days before Christmas that he had COVID-19, but the first day that I was called and I'm his power, I was his power of attorney. And so I was told that, um, you know, he was doing okay and um, that they weren't worried about him. Um, He seemed to be asymptomatic. And so we kind of all breathed a sigh of relief. Um, And then of course, the next day things changed. It changed very quickly. He was already on oxygen um, at that point. And I asked if we could come for a visit and they said, no, they had a real spread in the nursing home of COVID-19. And so they just weren't going to allow visitors even at the window at that point. Um, And then he started to progress and they said we needed to start preparing ourselves. And so at that point I talked to the administrator of the nursing home and just asked if we could please do a window visit. And they allowed for some dispensation there and we did do that 
And it was really hard um, because my love language is touch. And so to not be able to say goodbye to my dad, to touch him, it was, um, it's still traumatic, to, that we, but it was also beautiful because we did get to say goodbye. We did get to sing to him. It was Christmas Eve that we had our window visit. And so on Christmas Eve, we sang carols, uh, read scripture. We shared memories, really silly memories, serious memories. Um, um, and that was how we said goodbye. It was one of my brothers was out of town, but one was able to be there and my mom was there and um, it, it was just, you know, my brother's family, myself, my husband, our little baby and my mom. And we, we had people on Zoom saying goodbye to my dad, but um, it's been hard. It's, it's been hard. He died the day after Christmas and, um, you know, we weren't able to be there with him when he died. So how I've been nurturing that grief. I, I, if I'm honest, I haven't nurtured it enough. Like I, I feel it come up sometimes. Life is so busy with a toddler that um, I know I need to do more grief work, but I am seeing a therapist. Um, I, you know, went to the All Saints service um, Sunday. We're planning to do a hike to spread his ashes. I know the memorial service that we did back in May, we had to wait a while because of COVID, but that was really healing. I'm um, talking to supportive friends is healing, but um, yeah, it just feels like with all the, I mean, COVID adds just another layer of, of, of all experience, but I just, there's more grief work to do. So that's my grief experience, but also some ways that I'm trying to attend to that. Mm -hmm. um, so you guys for letting me share that and um Susan, do you mind sharing next? Sure. Um, I have a similar experience. My father died in a nursing home um, two years ago, uh, a year and a half ago. It was in May, a year and a half ago. And um, he had had um, Parkinson's for 20 plus years, was in a nursing home for 10. <clears throat> and he was out in California. I'm here in Tennessee. So he had a heart attack and ended up in the hospital. And I was able to, with his wife, um, be able to FaceTime him and he was not lucid. Um, he was heavily sedated and um, had, um, you know, the last thing that typically people have as far as a sense that goes before they die is their hearing. So I was able to see my dad and I was able to say goodbye to my father. Um, and I wasn't able obviously to touch him because I'm in Tennessee and he was in California. And he died probably about five hours after I'd done the FaceTime with him and had been able to FaceTime his other um, three children and his first wife as well. So some of the things that I have done around my dad uh, is just to acknowledge the grief because grief comes in so many waves and so unexpectedly. And often um, we, are, we have what I call sug moments, which are sudden unexpected grief reactions that are um, associated with our senses. So things that we see, touch, taste, and hear. So Thanksgiving was my dad's favorite um, holiday. And I was just thinking about him yesterday because one of the things that he loved about Thanksgiving was minced meat pie. 
And you don't typically see minced meat pie out very often, except around um, Thanksgiving. It's not a pie I would choose to eat, but there's a part of me this year that wants to eat a piece of minced meat pie or have a bite of minced meat pie just to honor and celebrate my dad because he loved that. And that was the one time of the year that we would make mincemeat pie and he would eat the whole thing because none of us liked it. So I think this year I'm going to have a, figure out how to get a bite or maybe a very thin sliver of mincemeat pie and celebrate my dad that way. And I think just looking at memories and um, having, finding ways just to honor him. I and mean, he was a huge traveler. And I think one of the, I don't think one of the greatest gifts that he gave me was the gift of travel. And um, anytime I take a road trip, I, I think of my dad because he was a, a wanderer in many ways. And I'm grateful for that. Oh, I love that. The minced meat pie and traveling to honor your dad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And just to do good self-care. And when, when those brief moments happen, when those seg moments happen, then I think the greatest thing you can do is validate it and name it. Oh God, I'm missing my dad. I'm really missing, you know, having a conversation with him. Although my, you know, as he continued to decline with Parkinson's, I couldn't talk to him because he lost his voice. And so um, he could only hear my voice. And that was the last two years of his life. So um, it was, it's a horrid disease. And, uh, in many ways, I was very grateful that my dad died because I, he was locked in a body that just didn't work anymore. And um, I felt badly for him with that. And that's a part of grief too, is that relief is a part of grief. Like yeah. I, my dad had been in the nursing home for a long time. And so I felt that, and we want to affirm for listeners that, you know, you can feel deep sadness and relief at the same time. You can feel anger and relief, right? And yes, and relief is often something that's very difficult for people to one, acknowledge or two, validate within themselves because it's like, I'm relieved that he died. Well, for me, I am relieved that my dad died because he was just held hostage in his body. But, you know, it doesn't mean that I don't miss him. It doesn't mean that I wish if he could be alive and be well, that would be wonderful. But that wasn't his journey. So, but relief is often a very difficult thing for people to be able to even verbalize and say, I feel relief because there's that sense of shame and guilt that go right behind it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Kat, do you share one of your grief experiences? Yeah, so, you know, this, this episode has been the only one that I've been really reluctant about because, um, you know, it's difficult to talk about grief. For me, it's, it's, it's you know, a subject that, that I really struggle with. But um, my mom passed away when I was 28 years old. Um, the timing of it was uh, really tragic because um, I've lived in the U.S. for a long time. Mom was in Russia and um, I found out that I was pregnant. I was married to my husband for two years at that time. We found out we were pregnant and um, I talked to her on my birthday and I told her that um, we were pregnant. 
And that was the last time I talked to her because uh, a few days later, I got a call from my brother telling me that mom fell ill and she was taken to a emergency surgery and I was at work. It was Friday. Um, so I flew out of Atlanta, Georgia on following Saturday and we live about five hours away uh, by car from Moscow. So by the time I got to the hospital, um, they told me that she passed. So I did not get a chance to, um, and that it was just so sudden. She was a person who only had cold at most when she was sick. She's never been sick. She always talked about how good her health was. And, um, it was colon cancer turned out that, um, she passed away from, and she did not know. We did not know. And, um, it was just catastrophic. I, you know, uh, I think we all have, you know, maybe we're all have, you know, this could happen or this could happen. But for me, I had like an unthinkable, like there are some things that would just never happen. She was my best friend. She was the closest person to me. Um, she's the one that I think, you know, loved me the most to this day. And I have a loving husband and two wonderful children. Um, so losing her was truly unthinkable. And then it happened. So I think that was such a crushing um, um, experience that I wasn't prepared for that literally took, like, I felt I had maybe like a, like, like a, like a strong rod inside of me that kind of held me together. Mm -hmm. And then the rod just got broken, you know, that, that foundation that holds you together as a person. So, um, long story short, um, I had to grieve my mom while I was pregnant with our daughter. And, um, I was for certain that I was going to lose the pregnancy because, um, I just felt horrible. I kept throwing up. I couldn't stand up. It was just like a black fog thinking back to it. Um, my husband flew in to get me, we flew, we flew me back. And, um, then I had to go back to work. Mm -hmm. And, um, that was just, all of the, you know, for me, the toughest thing I think about such a loss was that everybody's life continued to happen. And mine just felt like it ended like, like, you know, I think maybe victims of like horrible car crashes or train crashes, you know, like the train is burning, there's carnage everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I am at that carnage. And then everybody else is moving along and moving on and having life experiences. So um, for me, what I had to do, I had to go to grief counseling. I've never been to counseling before, uh, much less to grief counseling. So um, I went every week for nine months until I gave birth. And I'm sure I was a sight to see a big old pregnant woman coming in and out of the grief counselor, you know, with, with swollen eyes and crying. I think people in the lobby felt like, oh my God, she must have gotten left. He knocked her up and left her all alone and she just come in and cry about it. But, um, but yeah, so grief counseling was, was a different experience. I didn't know what to expect. I was lucky to have had a incredible um, counselor to work with me. And, you know, I think for the first two months I went in and I just cried. Like I couldn't even say a word. I couldn't verbalize. I just mm -hmm. cried for an hour. And, um, you know, her response to me was, of course, she was that significant to you. Of course, it's imp feels impossible to even say, you know, to acknowledge the loss. So mm -hmm. grief is a wild beast, I think. Mm -hmm. um, 
and even though we all know as we get older that grief is a part of a human experience, at least for me, I always thought that I would be old and ready for it mm-hmm. when it came for me. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it came for me at the worst timing when I was young and unprepared and didn't have anybody to support me through it, except for my husband who didn't know even what to do, you know. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And we also um, wanted to check in with you about, because we're talking about grief, but we're also talking about how each number in the Enneagram deals with grief, Susan. So we wanted to check in with you about um, your exposure to the Enneagram and whether you feel like you've landed on a particular Enneagram number, you might still be exploring that, um, but, but let us know about your thoughts about the Enneagram and whether you've landed on a number yet. So I, um, I am intrigued with the Enneagram. I've done very little with it and I did do this test and it, uh, not a surprise, I was a two, the helper. Uh-huh. Um, so that was like, that just matches exactly kind of where I am in my world right now. Um, And then the second one was a peacemaker, which is also very um, much in line with who I am as a human being. And so, um, but yes, the the helper is my high number. And I would definitely say that that is very accurate. Yeah. After, after working with you for 13 years. Yeah. That's not surprising to me. No, that, no. That, no. <laughs> um, you are, you're a helper um, in, in some, in so many of the positive qualities of the, the helper are in you. You're warm, you're nurturing, you're empathetic. You have a big heart. Um, you sometimes like me can sacrifice yourself or others. Um, very, very much so. Yeah. 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 So. So I see that for sure. Um, So again, thank you for for being here. And we have a few questions for you, but we're also going to talk about how each member grieves and how you might work with clients who are grieving in these unique ways. Yes. So Susan, I have a first question for you, and I want to thank you so much for your generosity of sharing your time and your wisdom with us. But could you please tell, you know, I think the big misconception um, that only death is the life experience that can cause grief. From your experience of working with your patients and being exposed to um, dealing and helping with grief, what are some other life experiences that can cause grief in our lives? So there's actually um, a term in the world of thanatology Thanatology, which is the study of death and dying. There's actually people that study this day in and day out and it's called ambiguous loss. And um, it's, so it's an actual real life thing. And I would say ambiguous loss is, is a loss, or if you want to use the word death of something that is not a physical death of a person, a human being, a four-legged critter or something like that. It may be the loss of a job. It may be um, the loss of a relationship. It may be the loss of of freedom. And I think like with this whole COVID over the last two years plus, there has been so much ambiguous loss that people have been experiencing, just the loss of normalcy, 
Yeah. And, you know, uh, is it safe to go into a restaurant? Is it safe to be in a place of worship? Is it, you know, in my family, there's one person in my family that has made some different decisions than what I would do with the whole vaccine thing. I mean, there's all these like um, losses that have come with COVID and just in everyday life. So yes, ambiguous loss is a very real piece of what we all experience in yeah. different ways. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. COVID is um, one thing that I definitely feel like we've been grieving. What are some of the other things that we can grieve that are those ambiguous losses that we grieve? So I would, I would say things like, I mean, if we go beyond COVID, it would be relationships, jobs, financial security, your physical health, um, finding just different ways of doing a life that um, you thought was going in one direction and then all of a sudden something happened and you're going in a whole different direction. Um, uh, those would be some of the things I would say. So those are all non-death losses, but they impact us in the same ways. You still have like, um, I lost, I had my job eliminated and I was just blindsided by that. And I experienced so much grief around that. Mm -hmm. And I was almost catatonic for the first week plus because I just could not believe after almost two weeks short of 19 years that I was no longer working for this organization. And um, it really did a number on me personally, um, just of the loss of colleagues that I never got to say goodbye to, the loss of people I was working with and the groups and the familiarity of my daily routine is totally gone. And so all of that, and, and so I experienced a lot of so, tremendous amount of sadness and anger and um, concentration is a huge thing with grief, poor concentration where people, you just, you can't remember things. And so you're right, you make lists and then you make more lists. Um, and so, but yes, it's very, that's a very real thing. And, and I don't yeah. think. I don't think we recognize the ambiguous loss like it needs to be recognized. Yeah. I think memory really is a huge part of, of grief, whether you're in concentration, like you said, whether it's the death of a loved one or a job or whatever, whatever that loss um, is in your life. I know I found myself and of course, you know, um, I have a toddler as well, so that's part of it, but and, and we've had some sleeping issues. So I know that's one layer of the, the memory and concentration, but my dad dying definitely is another because I've made more mistakes and done things in the last year that just aren't like me, but you're <laughs> combobulated, right? Like it's totally. Yeah. Yeah. So we have to give ourselves a lot of grace. Yes. Um, so Susan, I know that you have a private practice um, and you're a wonderful licensed marriage and family therapist. So what are some of the ways that you encourage clients to feel and express grief? 
I like using a lot of creativity, whether it's through writing, whether it's through art and collaging, whether it's through song, whether it's through dance or movement or yoga or um, finding exercise, different ways that you can be expressive that are not just necessarily sitting and having a conversation with somebody, um, but using different modalities like that. Um, really encourage, I think uh, most everybody will hear me say that at the end of the day, as you lay your head on the, your pillow, ask yourself, what is one kind thing that I did for myself today? And mm -hmm. it may be as a, a good cup of coffee or, you know, loving on your toddler or getting mm -hmm. good hugs or taking a great walk or having a great yoga session but it, it doesn't have to be a huge amount of time and it doesn't have to cost a penny, but it's uh, continuing to fill because often for people, um, they're well, I, I like using a lot of analogies, they're well as dry when there's a, a significant death, you know, like you were talking about Kate and you were talking about Christy and your well is dry and you need to start putting water back in that well. And the only way you can start getting water back in that well is by you doing good self-care. And so whatever that might look like, I will have people write lists of, okay, I want you to list 10 things that are good self-care. And I want to make sure that you do at least one of those every day, if not two or three or four. Mm -hmm. um, because I think so much of what we experience, whether it's ambiguous loss or it's actual grief when you've had such a significant death, is that we often people forget to take care of themselves because it's just like overwhelming. And so coming back to your body, coming back home to you, I think is so, it's vitally important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. What are some ways that you think we compare or minimize our grief? And why, why might this be dangerous? We live in a death phobic society. Mm -hmm. We don't like talking about death. I have to be, I have to remind myself, I am an enigma. I talk about death all the time. And it, it's very, I'm very comfortable with that. But the average Joe out there is not like me. Now, Christy, you and I can have some really wonderful conversations. And, but most people do not like talking about death. Right. And it's almost like you have grief cooties. And right. so- you know, someone, you're in a grocery store and they know that you've just had a significant death and they see you and they think, oh my God, I don't want to talk to Kate because I don't know what to say to Kate. And, you know, it's so I'll go down another aisle and it's like, you're like trying to just hold it together, um, doing your, your normal everyday grocery shopping that should be just, you know, go like this. And it just is becoming harder and harder because sudden moments, that sudden unexpected grief are so prevalent in grocery stores because of food being such a common element in our world. Um, so I think one of the, a very, very important thing is acknowledging your grief. Uh, your question was, how, why do we, we compare and minimize our grief and why can that be dangerous? By minimizing it, you're gonna end up, it's gonna come out sideways. It's gonna come out in a passive aggressive behavior, it's gonna come out in relationships. And so it can be very um, nasty. It can be really danger dangerous, I guess I would use that 
Um, it can come out, people that tend to not want to deal with their grief, there tends to be more addiction issues. Um, with COVID, and I'll go back to COVID, there was an increase in suicides, a 33% increase in suicides over a COVID. There was a 22% increase in deaths by opioids um, and drugs with COVID. There was an increase in murders over COVID. And so people, their coping mechanisms became very um, non-existent. Yeah. And so I think that can, that can lead to a very dangerous road. Sure. I agree with you. And you know, you have made an excellent point. I'm going to take it off road, but it's serendipity. It's meant to be shared. So you have mentioned that we are not taught about death. We don't talk about death. We're not educated about death and we are scared of death, which is one inevitable part of human experience. Like we, we're all gonna go. So I was just so happened, you know, I always joke, Christine, I have a podcast and I like to check out competition. So I'll listen to Oprah's podcast and Brene Brown's podcast and Glenna Duell's podcast. And one of my favorite is by Dan Harris. It's called The 10% Happier. And I was listening to it literally yesterday and I had to go back so I could take notes. But Dan was interviewed a lady, her name is, Kara Jewel Lingo, and she's a Buddhist, and she shared five daily remembrances that Buddha suggested that we do every day or even more. And here those are. I am of the nature to grow old. I can't escape growing old. I am of the nature to get sick. I can't escape ill health. I am of the nature to die and cannot escape death. Everyone I love and is dear to me is of the nature to change and I can't escape being separated from them. My actions are my only true belongings. They are the ground on which I stand. I can't escape consequences of my actions. Wow. Right? So I'm listening to this in the car and I'm finding myself feeling extremely uncomfortable like it's a beautiful day I'm a good mood and I'm of the nature today and cannot escape death we all know it but to not only hear it and say it and say it to ourselves every single day as a daily remembrance how many in our society do that very few (laughs) that's why So the lady was saying she did a little workshop and she did the workshop with these daily remembrances with teenagers, because again, we all think we're going to be old and gray and prepared for grief when it comes for us. So she did this uh, workshop with these daily remembrances with teenagers. And guess what the feedback was that it was extremely difficult yet so helpful to think about it and to sit with it Mm -hmm. and to accept it and Mm -hmm. to get comfortable with it. Wow. Wow. Right? Mind blowing. So to your point, we we need to get comfortable with the notion of loss. Yes. Permanence. Yes. And grief. Yes. Wow. 
very profound. Yeah, I can remember being in my early 20s taking a seminar where somebody said that death is our fundamental vulnerability and that's always stuck with me and mm -hmm. it is and if we if we don't acknowledge that then I think we also don't live as fully so I think our acceptance of our mortality um, can help us to love one another to hold one another closer um, if we'll let it um, but I do think that there's a real wisdom and learning to accept our mortality, but we run from it. That's why there's the popular book, The Denial of Death, because we're not comfortable with death. I love that you shared that. Mm -hmm. And I think Kat's gonna get us started with how the type one uh, deals with grief. And then Susan's gonna give us some observations about how she might help a client who's a type one, a perfectionist. Yeah, thank you. So, you know, grief, I think, like Susan said, it comes each and every way and can come sideways and crossways and from bottom up and top to bottom. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I'm not going to generalize and say all type ones grieve this way, but here's kind of our observation. So, and I'm type one, which is perfectionist. So for, for ones, Enneagram ones, the structure when grieving in order to know the right way to, to proceed and to actually grieve is really important. And it, it could uh, really be confusing if we don't know the right way to grieve. And um, ones are in the God body triad. So um, anger is the emotion that flares up first and foremost. And sometimes ones can display uh, being critical or judgmental or perfect you know, trying to be perfect while they're grieving. And the era of stress of one is uh, two Enneagram four, which um, could result into being withdrawn and moody and emotional and irritable. And I can certainly relate to all of that. And, you know, looking back 16 years ago, when, when I had to experience my mom's passing, you know, the biggest thing was I was so angry. I was just so mad. I was mad at my father. I was mad at God. I was mad at people who had their mothers. I was mad at people who had their mothers, didn't appreciate them. Uh, I was just so fucking angry all the time for yeah. a really long time. And, 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 you know, we share this with our listeners to say that if you've gone through this or you're going through this, again, you're not alone. We, 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 you know, we all experience certain emotions. They're not exclusive to us. So my question to Susan is, do you have any recommendations or how to respond to people who are experiencing grief in the way that maybe Enneagram One would tend to experience a grief, being critical, judgmental, angry, um, just just going through these negative emotions. Yes, uh, I, I think to start out with, there is no right way to grieve. Yeah. So Kat, how you grieve will be different than how Christy grieves or right. how I grieve. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that may be really hard especially for um, a one, a type one, to wrap their head around thinking yeah. there's got to be a formula that yes. if I do this formula, I yes. will not feel this pain. 
And why can't somebody tell me this formula? Why are they keeping it from me? Because right. if they gave it to me, I could follow and be better. Right, right. And it doesn't work that way. <laughs> and so I think acknowledging that, yeah. that your grief is as unique to you as my grief is as unique to me. Yeah. is, And you are going to grieve differently for your mom than you're going to grieve for the next person in your world that dies and the next person after that. Um, And so that I think is very, very important. I think to be able to acknowledge how angry and pissed off you are um, at the fact that your mom died so suddenly and there was no preparation. Even if you know someone's going to die, they've been given a terminal illness and you know that they're gonna die, you still have anger. not only do we live in a grief phobic society, but anger is not something that is often very um, well received because it comes out sideways often. And so Mm -hmm. finding some ways that you can physically move your anger and whether like with kids, soccer, basketball, baseball, going to the batting cages. If you are um, a kid or an adult and you like to golf, going, hitting a a bunch of um, balls, a bucket of balls and letting those balls become whatever you're angry at, walking it out, running it out. So with anger, I would really encourage something physical and to be very mindful of how angry you are and use your anger in that physicalness, whether you lift weights, whatever that is, um, can be balls are, um, I was, when I was in grad school, I really got into racquetball and that's a good one. You can, and I would go probably three or four times a week playing racquetball. And that, that ball was a fabulous, um, release of, anger, anxiety, whatever it was that I was feeling. And I would come out of there sweaty, but it's like I had to let it go in that court. And so find ways that work for you. And and the same thing's not gonna work for you every time. Racquetball didn't work for me every single time. It maybe I needed to sit and talk or I may need to journal or I'm, but often with anger and that type of agitation, moving it out, giving it an energy is really helpful. What a great advice. Thank you. Thank you. Where were you in my life 16 years ago? I was here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, speaking of the Enneagram ones, Susan, um, I just was hearkening back to when we worked together and I loved calling your phone sometimes because I would get your voice message and on your voice message what were these words, I hope that I'm saying them right. Remember to treat yourself with kindness and give yourself an abundance of grace. And I think we all need those words all the time in life. We especially need them when we're grieving. And Enneagram ones even more so need them because they're so hard on themselves. So treating ourselves with kindness and giving ourselves an abundance of grace. I come back to your words often. And so I just want to say thank you for those words, but also share them with others. <laughs> thank you. Yes. It's yeah. still on my voicemail. Oh, it's still on the voicemail. That's yeah. great. Okay. So the type twos um, want love and affirmation from others. 
Um, and yet while they want the support from others, they also want to help others. And sometimes they try to help the rest of the family through their grief um, instead of feeling it themselves. And I'm a type two, you're a type two. Uh, we're in the heart or shame triad. Um, and we're more likely to experience shame because of that, um, or even feelings of guilt, like I didn't do enough, um, I, I wasn't a good enough daughter, um, that can come up for the Enneagram too. They can also um, become martyr-like in their grief, um, just again, trying to help everybody else and be very prideful. They struggle to acknowledge their own needs, so they're so busy planning the funeral, they're so busy um, again, like I was the power of attorney, I was so busy with all of that, that sometimes I didn't allow myself that space to fill my own grief. Um, and when they're in stress, twos become more like the eight on the Enneagram, which is the challenger. So they become more demanding, controlling, even argumentative when they're grieving. So those are just a few of characteristics of the two and how they might show up in the midst of grief. So how might you help somebody like that? Somebody who has your personality type on the Enneagram? Great question. Um, I think shame is a big piece of that because it's almost like, because I'm a helper, I shouldn't feel this. I mm. should be able to know um, how to do this grief world or this grief journey that I'm on. Then um, when my dad died, Again, he was in a nursing home and there was none of my, I have four siblings, three biological siblings, and none of us were with him. Um, and it was very interesting. One of my brothers had a very fractured relationship with my dad. And then my sister and my other brother and myself had a, a, a okay relationship. My other brother was very, very close with my dad. And so finding... Um, being able to give voice to some of the feelings that I had around my father, because um, he and I had a pretty challenging relationship at times, but being able to, um, I think, I want to say forgiveness, but I'm not even sure that that's the right word, to forgive myself for some of the things that I had felt about my dad and be, being able to be okay with that. Um, I think is a big thing, especially in that helper piece where you feel like you have to be perfect. Um, or the number one in uh, type one is more of that as well, but kind of like you need to be the support system there for everybody. And I knew I couldn't be that for my youngest brother who was very, very close with him. He needed to do his own journey. And so I think one of the challenges as someone coming in with a type two is to allow people to have their own journey and not feel like you have to control it. Mm -hmm. Because that is something that is a very, um, it would be very easy to fall into. Like, mm -hmm. you know, this is how I'm grieving. So of course you're gonna grieve the same way. Well, that doesn't work that way. Um, yeah. And so really being kind of checking yourself and saying, okay, this is my journey and this is David's journey and this is Daniel's journey and this is Beth's journey. And mm -hmm. all of us are going to do it different, including my mom, who was divorced from my dad. Um, and it's interesting, more people were concerned about my mom than they were so much about the four of us. It was, it, that was very intriguing when we went to the memorial service. And my dad, my mom was there. Um, I spoke. 
I think one of my my youngest brothers spoke, um, and of course I'm a, I'm a two, so of course I would speak um, at my dad's memorial service. I did too at my dad's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that's just normal, right? Right. So, um, so, uh, and there was like there wasn't even a question that I would not. Right. Same. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, anyways, but my mom um, sat in the back. And um, people were very concerned about her. Um, and, and there's a whole nother term around that. We, we don't have to, it's called a disenfranchised grief, which is a grief that's often not validated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's kind of like, how could she be grieving my dad after they were married 39 years? Um, and she hadn't been with him for 25 plus years or whatever. And it's like, she was and um, being able to validate that. So, but that's a whole nother piece that has nothing really to do with a type two um, on the Enneagram, so. For people to know disenfranchised grief, like for a long time um, when you have same-sex partners who weren't able um, to have their grief validated because they weren't married. I mean, I know now they can be married, but for a long time they weren't. Well, that's disenfranchised grief, right? Correct, correct. And I would say one of the biggest pieces of disenfranchised, well, not one of the biggest, but a very common one is miscarriages or the death of a child in utero or at at birth um, is often a disenfranchised grief, uh, very much a disenfranchised grief, so. Thank you for that. Well, let's move on to type threes, which is our achiever. And, you know, the thing about Enneagram threes, they like to set goals quickly. They like to achieve quickly so they can move on to the next list and the next achievement. And in a healthy space, they would express their emotions, but in an unhealthy space, they might run away from them. So threes are just like twos in heart and shame triad and um, may start feeling insecure and feel guilty in some ways that they failed in some ways. And um, in an unhealthy space or under stress, they might um, display negative traits of threes, which is being deceitful and unauthentic. And um, also they move towards the nines in stress, um, picking up the stressful qualities of nines, which has been quiet and withdrawn and slothful. So for for people um, who experience grief in that way, Susan, what would be your recommendation? So thinking in terms of a type three where guilt is a big piece, I I would normalize your guilt. I feel guilty because I didn't spend enough time with my dad. I feel guilty because I wasn't able to get to my mom's side by the time she died at the, you know, in the hospital, Um, which is, are some things that you may or may not have control over, but naming that. And I think around grief, people often feel very uncomfortable naming guilt as one of them, because again, it's like, that means I didn't do enough or the perception is I did not do enough for myself, whether that perceived out there or not. But for me, it's like, I could have done more. And so I, I really believe that stating I am feeling guilty and that's what it is. This is guilt period. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. not having to do much more with that. Um, 
be mindful that you might want to run away. You might not want to watch certain things that would evoke certain feelings um, around your um, your grief around whomever has died. Um, and I think the more conscious and the more aware you are of your behaviors and your tendency to go in running away, being uh, quiet, withdrawn, kind of becoming more introverted, um, inauthentic, because I would imagine for a lot of type threes, becoming inauthentic is not something that that feels good about. Yeah. That it may be even saying this is part of a coping mechanism, even though I know it's not healthy right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, but finding different ways to validate, normalize, and name. And I think that could be really helpful. Thank you. And being married to a type three, I could see with the guilt, um, my, my husband's parents are both still alive, but if I, I'm just thinking about how he might react if a close loved one died, he is a doer and often threes are doers. And there might be some guilt that you still didn't do enough, which is kind of paradoxical because they've already been doing so much mm -hmm. um, to realize you did enough, you mm -hmm. know, um, I think might be helpful for a three to hear, like you, you really did enough. But to validate that and say, no, that's, that's a false message that, yes. I, that I did not do enough. I did da, 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 da. And you may have to make a list of everything you did to come yeah. back to and say, okay, this is, this is truth over here is not truth. Yeah. The lies we tell ourselves for yeah. sure. Yeah. So our type four, the fours want to feel their emotions all day long. So since fours are in the heart and shame triad, they are more likely to feel um, like uh, they were not enough to the person who, who died. They might compare themselves to others. Um, they might become moody and withdrawn while they're grieving. They move to the two in stress. Um, so they could look a little bit like a two being people pleasing, um, wondering if family members are mad at them and over helping. So they might look that way or they might just totally withdraw and stay in the bed all day long and just feel things. Um, they, they can be a type that are really likely to get stuck in the grief because they, they teach the rest of us to feel that is their gift, but sometimes um, they can't, they struggle to find that equanimity or that balance between, you know, what is still good and what is still painful. Mm -hmm. uh, that's our, our four. What would you, you know, how would you help a four? So I think it's very important to remind everyone, not just a four, but everyone that you have to have timeouts from grief. You cannot grieve 24 seven, it will destroy you. Mm -hmm. it, it, so you have to find ways to get out of bed. You have to find ways to go and create whatever meal you need to make or find a way to get food in your system. Mm -hmm. um, and to realize that as someone that feels so much, I worked with a woman years ago who had a plethora of death in her family. And she was the epitome of grief. And it just, 
you know, you have those cartoons where you have the clouds hanging over somebody and they just walk and the, the cloud continues. That was how she was. And that was an identification piece for her. That is yeah. who she became. She became her grief. And it was understandable given all the different significant deaths that had happened. Um, and yet it was so dangerous for her to sit in that space. And so we worked a long time together. She loved to cook. She found that she couldn't cook anymore. And so she ended up starting um, to cook for some shut-ins and doing some more helping things, but it gave her a purpose because she had lost her purpose. Yeah. And so maybe trying to find things, maybe small, it may be big, but finding things that will help give you a purpose so that you can feel like you can get that time out, which is essential, essential every day and be able to one, feel your grief, but also be able to stop and do something where you're not just that cloud over you walking through life. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Thank you. That's great advice. Well, on to number five. So fives are our investigators and typically they want to avoid emotions, both theirs and others. And since fives are in the head triad, anxiety is more likely to show up, especially if they feel incompetent or don't have answer about the loved one's death or just the answer why something tragic, traumatic, catastrophic happened that they're grieving over. And they may become withdrawn, emotionally unavailable or cold and arrogant in their grief. And also air stress for a five is to seven, which means they can become indulgent and grounded and completely ignore their pain. So what would be your advice for somebody who's grieving that way or somebody who's somebody who's grieving that way? So there's actually a term for that in the world of phantology called mass grief, which is people that don't either don't recognize their grief or are unwilling to recognize their grief yeah. or want nothing to do with their grief. And it really didn't impact me, which is not I would say for the majority of people, that's not accurate. And again, we all grieve differently for different people and it depends so much on who we are and what's happening in our lives and other deaths that have happened that continues to contribute to how we deal with grief. Yeah. Um, the whole answer of why did this happen? Wow, is that not just such a common question? Right. Like, why didn't I see this sooner? Why didn't I see those symptoms quicker? Why? why couldn't I prevent that from happening? Why did that doctor do this procedure? And yeah. in looking at it differently, we should have done this procedure. The whys get you, I mean, get you nowhere because yeah. there's, you can't change what the outcome was, which was this person died or yeah. these people died. And it's like, so engage in your why. And so a very fun, um, Oh, I think it's fun, but maybe other people don't. A fun writing exercise to do is what's called an act of imagination. And it's between you and somebody else. So what I would encourage someone like this, that if they had a lot of why questions, is to have an act of imagination exercise with why. So it would start out with Susan. Um, and I would be, it's like a two-person script. Susan, why are you so, why? You are so prevalent in my life because... And I would have why answer. 
the reason I'm so um, prevalent in your life right now is because of blah, 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 blah. If you do this exercise, you basically cut out about 30 minutes in your life. You turn off, turn off all your devices and you just sit and write, whether you write on the computer or you write in longhand. And it's not about, um, it, it doesn't, it, it's not about grammar. It's not about punctuation or anything like that. It's to get you engaged with that inner critic inside of you, that inner voice inside of you that you may not have knowledge of, and it may give you some information, but it's a great exercise to do, especially when you feel stuck in something. So, yeah. Thank you. I might do that tonight, Susan. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) I would also add for five is they disengage from their feelings, but also from their body that going to um, a yoga class or going to the gym could be really helpful for them because they need to move um, that grief out of the body as well. Um, Because they are the type that just wants to sit and listen to a podcast. They want to read, they want to, you know, find comfort and knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that's good. I mean, it could be good for them to read um, a book on grief. I think that would help them. But I also think to move into the heart space and the body space is just so important for our family. I totally agree with that. Yeah. So the type six will find safety and security in establishing a plan for the funeral. Um, they also want reassurance about the future they worry things are going to fall apart and they need a lot of insur- assurance since sixes are in the head triad, anxiety or fear will likely surface, especially if a friend or family member has not been loyal during the grief experience because they're called the loyalist. And so loyalty is very important to them. Um, type six traits may show up like anxiety, uh, distress catastrophizing. Um, They might even have some social anxiety that kind of shows up where they just withdraw and pull away. Um, And stress, they may be more like a three. So they may um, be afraid of failure and they may be checking off their things to-do list. Um, Any thoughts on how to help a six when they're in the middle? When you look at, or you say the word loyalist, I think that's really important to kind of um, focus on that they, there are so, I cannot tell you how many times I hear people say, my best friend doesn't even talk to me anymore because I don't know what to say. Oh, and so wow. I think there's this expectation that when a death, a significant death occurs, that everybody knows what to say to you. Everybody mm-hmm. knows how to approach you. Everybody knows um, what to do for you. And often that is so false because people, one, don't want to talk about death to you have grief cooties already. And so they're going to just kind of stay away from you. My brother-in-law died very suddenly. Um, I think it's been 11 years. It's been, it's been a minute. And um, I was actually in, he was, his daughter was to get married and she got married the day before he died. He was in ICU on the day that he, that she was to be married. It was a, a long story, but Um, I was in the airport when my mother called me to fly back from San Diego to um, Chattanooga that Tim had um, really taken a toll and they thought he was going to die that day. And I asked my sister, I said to my mom, ask Beth if she wants me to, uh, you know, come back 
and I'll stay for the funeral. And my sister very, I can't believe she had this even in her head. She said, no, I need you to come back in two months when everybody has, has gone. And so it's, it's that initial, you know, everyone comes, they bring food, they send cards, they say, you know, let me know if there's anything I can do for you. I mean, how often people heard that? And really what people need to say is, hey, Christy, I know that Isabel is um, needing to go to daycare and can I take her for you? Or can I bring, I am going to be making quiche today and I'd love to make two quiches and bring one to you. And so rather than assuming that the person that's grieving can verbalize what they need, because most people don't, it's it's you offering something and just saying, this is what I'd like to provide. Could I do this? Could I go and get stamps for you for your cards that you're going to send out? Or, I mean, you know, um, yeah, or yeah. ink for your printer for your, for your, for your, you know, because you've run out of printing ink. Just like some very tangible things that would take take off, um, you know, the, what you have to do. Um, so the, when you think in terms of someone, the loyalist and when friends don't know what to say, it really is a, I, I believe it is a societal thing. We don't go back, I go back to what I first said at the very beginning, we don't know how to talk about death. And yeah. so people just say stupid stuff. Yeah. And then people get really angry about that. Yeah. 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 And so it's, it's giving, it's, it's acknowledging. I'm really upset that my best friend has not called me because we talk every day and I haven't heard from her in three days. Okay. I need to give her some grief, grief. I need to give her some grace that she doesn't know what, how to talk to me. So I'm going to call her and say, I think I'm really missing having my daily contact with you. I really need that right now. I know you don't know what to say can we just get together and just be present and you don't have to say anything. Silence can be so healing, but it's that intentional silence. Yeah. Yeah. And asking for what we need and, and, be, and not being afraid of the silence or to be able to say, you know, I'm just so sorry about the death of your aunt yes. and to pause and know you don't have to say anything else. You know, we fill the silence with things that actually can be hurtful, like, oh, I can't imagine what you're going through when actually people want us to imagine what they're going, you know, somebody who's grieving actually, because we do, we say things like I can't imagine, but the grieving person wants us to imagine what they're going through. Yeah. I had something on my, um, at my desk, W-A-I-T, wait, why? am I talking? Oh, yeah. And, and I mean, in therapy, we, you know, it's like holding that space mm -hmm. and allowing the person to kind of very slowly or quickly figure out what it is that they're feeling and, and not feel like you have to rescue them. Mm -hmm. The person who's grieving needs yeah. to find that comfort with the silent and then the person who's trying to comfort those who are grieving needs to find that sense of it's okay to be quiet yes. and just yeah, yeah. well said.
Hot tickets to seven. When sevens grieve, um, they may want freedom to grieve in their own way. And they may also avoid the grief at all costs because the thing about sevens, they have really difficult time staying um, present with any negative or painful emotions. And um, sevens are also in the head triad. So some anxiety or fear may show up for them as they grieve. They might seem scattered or overextended or uh, trying to escape their grief. Um, so for people who are grieving in that way, Susan, what could you offer? That's a hard one because um, someone, is really wanting to push their grief away. Yeah. And, I, and for many people that are sevens or have tendencies to be sevens, my experience is that even though you're trying to push your grief away, your grief is still here and it's gonna come out sideways in some other way, some other behavior. And so maybe for a seven, it would be someone, it would be allowing yourself, okay, for 10 minutes, I'm gonna really feel this grief. I'm going to write a, I'm going to get a journal from my mom and I'm just going to write her a letter and I'm going to cry and I'm going to have whatever feelings or I'm going to be angry or whatever feelings I have, but I'm just going to spend 10 minutes focusing on what I wish I could tell her today or how much I miss her today. Or, um, I'm going to go and I'm going to go through Dunkin' Donuts and I'm gonna um, pay for the person behind me and pay it forward and tell the person at the window, please tell that person to love their loved ones today. Mm. To do something that is, um, so it may not be a lot of feelings, but it's an acknowledgement of their grief. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so you can do it in, in, you can do it in that 10 minute thing of doing a writing, you can do it, paying it forward. Um, when my, when Tim died, I was at Panera, I was trying to do a pay it forward. And I had this, I had uh, done a three by five card um, and said, you know, I'm paying this forward. And so I was at the, at the register and I said to the woman at the register, I'll pay for the person behind me. I had no idea who was behind me. So I moved over and it was an older gentleman. And um, she said, well, this woman is paying for your meal. And he's like, I don't want her to pay for my meal. And I was like, <laughs> okay, sir. And I handed him this card that I had made about Tim. And he was like, I don't want this. And he handed it back to me. And I was just like, I'm just trying to do something kind in honor of Tim. And so, he, I mean, he paid for his meal and it was the next person that I said, would you, would you allow me to gift you a, a meal in honor of my brother-in-law who just died? And this, that person was, was like, sure, why not? You know, but it, was, it was one of my funniest things in trying to do something kind and, and just, just in honor of somebody. And I, and I love doing that. I've had, I've had several people that have actually made business cards with their loved one's name. And then they just leave the, uh, you know, a tip at the um, restaurant with that card in honor of that person or, you know, give it to somebody at a window at Dunkin' Donuts or wherever. But I mean, people do a lot of different fun things. Yeah. Well, that's what I would do. Yeah, those are our beautiful examples. So let's look at our Enneagram 8. So our Enneagram 8s are intense. They want power or control in the midst of their grief. 
Um, they often want to move forward because they are energetic, they're on the go, they're often leaders. I mean, think CEO of a company. Um, since A's, eights are in the gut body triad, anger is more likely to be present. Um, other people can feel sometimes that anger of the eight. Um, sometimes the eights are aware of their own anger and sometimes they're not. Um, they struggle with vulnerability. They can be good at being transparent, um, but, but going to the, the feelings and being more vulnerable is hard for an eight. Other people can experience the eight as controlling and intimidating. Um, stress, they actually might be more like a five. So they might withdraw their time, um, even touch or resources from others. Uh, so those are just a few ways that eight might show up in grief. And so if you were working with somebody like that, um, what, what might you do? What might you offer? I, I would encourage them to embrace their vulnerability in a safe environment, whether that is just by themselves and they are feeling their grief. And again, maybe giving themselves a time limit on, okay, I'm going to do this for 15 minutes or whatever. Um, but to really um, name, again, naming it, I think is so important. And then realizing, okay, I can deal with this for a short period of time and then I can go back into that need of being in control and taking charge and doing the controlling piece if I need to do that. Um, and then if they do go inward um, where they, you know, are not being very responsive with touch or resources or withdrawing of time is being able to say, I just, ha I have no energy right now. I am depleted. And that can, that I would imagine is very difficult for an eight to say I'm depleted. Oh, um, very wise. Yes. Um, and so, uh, you know, if they are able to acknowledge that, I think that would go a long ways. They may just have to acknowledge it for themselves and not necessarily to anybody else. But it's like, I am depleted. I need to fill my well. I go back to that well image. I mm -hmm. need to just withdraw and sit and watch Netflix for all day, mm -hmm. the rest of the day, or turn my devices off and just be alone. And, and to be able to say that's okay to begin mm -hmm. to fill that well again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Well, I'm going to round off our numbers with last but not least, number nine, who are wow. peacemakers. So um, during grief, they may have to feel like they have to assume a role of family mediator. They may want to avoid conflict altogether. And since nines are also in the guide body triad, anger may surface for them in the midst of grief. However, for nines, it could be more of passive aggressive uh, way to express the anger. And they may easily dip into the negative um, traits of a nine, which is becoming indecisive and not speaking up about their opinions or needs or spacing out completely, being forgetful or withdrawing. Also, in stress, they move towards sixes, suspicion, and anxiety. So if somebody is grieving in that way, Susan, what would be your opinion and your advice? So families, everybody grieves differently. And I will tell you, 
in when a death occurs, it is a high strung thing, often in families. Yeah. And people assume that everybody's going to cry and that not everybody cries. People's going to assume that everybody's going to do grief the same way as a family. And that often does not happen. I would say more so majority of time, it does not happen. Did yeah. you acknowledge that in your, when your mom happened? When you're uh, not 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 as much with with mom. you know actually yes because I have an older brother and we're we're quite different and then when my husband's mom passed away that was a really different dynamic to watch how uh, members of his family because I had more of a seat of being able to look at it from outside in mm -hmm. even though it was extremely painful for me as well but to just see how certain people moved on and then certain people got stuck certain mm -hmm. people cried certain people didn't just like as you say and it was a surprise I didn't expect it yeah yeah mm -hmm. so being able to say okay everybody's going to do this differently yeah. they want me to be in a role of a helper and you know yeah I like that but then there's part of me that's pissed off that I'm automatically assumed to be in that role yeah. um I don't you know can't somebody else do whatever task that I needs to be done that nobody's willing to take um, responsibility for. And so then that's when some of that passive aggressive behavior probably starts to really um, get amped up um, because often families, especially in grief, are not very direct with one another. And mm -hmm. so because you want to kind of dance around it because everyone's hurting and so you don't want to be perceived as being um, hard on your youngest brother who's just being a jerk because he's not doing whatever you asked him to do. Um, and so there's, a, there's all these like messages in, that are from society that are external that are going on in your head trying to create whatever you know, your need to do as a nine. Um, but I would, I would really focus on the fact that everybody in, in your family, and it doesn't have to be your biological family, it can be whatever family you've created in your life, is going to grieve whoever has died differently. And to just normalize that and again, validate, validate that and name it. Um, acknowledge that everybody is going to have different feelings and that this is all part of this word this term called grief yeah yeah thank you so much well i know christy's going to wrap it up but from me to you susan i feel like i've just been a part of the most beautiful therapy session uh -huh. that i could have been a part of and for that i truly thank you for me personally i think a lot of our listeners would may, may feel the same way so thank you thank you very much yeah, thank you, Susan. And um, we're going to highlight on our website, but also at the very beginning of the podcast, ways that people can get in touch with you, whether they're interested in hearing about your private practice or whether they might want you to come and do a brief workshop um, at a company where they work. Um, that you know, we're going to share with people how to get in touch with you. But again. Susan, for me, is um, the grief expert in Chattanooga. Like I have, I have a lot of friends who are marriage and family therapists or psychologists, and they're all wonderful with grief. But um, I've never met anybody quite like Susan, and she has so much expertise. And I'm just so grateful for your time today, but also for how you have done so much in this area to 
to help people with their grief and to inform people about the grief process. Um, you've done so much education. Like you said, you worked here in this area for about 20 years, mm -hmm. um, people with grief, and that's quite a commitment and that's quite an offering. And you're just a wealth of knowledge and we're grateful for you and your time today, but also for what you're doing um, all over the city. Um, and uh, it's, it's truly making a difference. So well, thank, thank you. Jason. And, um, and we've just really been blessed. And so have our listeners. This episode is brought to you by Shopify, whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing. However, you cha-ching from the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the, we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This meditation is a short meditation for anybody in a season of grief. Take a deep breath in through your nose. Exhale out through your mouth. Bring one hand to your heart, your palm touching your heart. Continue to breathe. Take a few moments to settle and rest. Allow yourself to feel the weight of your body grounding to the earth below you. And then start to tap in to any feelings that might be coming up right now. It might be fear, pain, anger, grief, exhaustion, guilt, or something else. Hold that grief in your heart. Befriend that grief as if you might befriend and hold something precious. And then take a moment to just sit with the feelings, to stay with the breath, but to also feel grace and love and compassion surrounding you in the midst of these feelings. In your body, see if you can experience the comfort of knowing that there is a grace that holds you in the midst of your grief. Allow yourself to breathe and maybe start to give yourself a hug where hands come to opposite shoulders, holding yourself in the midst of your grief, and maybe remembering the person that you're grieving, remembering their smile, remembering the ways that they nurtured you, remembering even some of the difficulties you may have had with that person. 
and know that you can come back to this meditation and to these feelings whenever you need to return to them. You can put your hand to your heart or you can give yourself a hug. And it is so important to nurture yourself in the midst of grief. Take a deep breath in. Exhale out through the mouth. Know that you are loved. Continue to find ways to love yourself in this season. Namaste.